The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. How do you solve a problem like the Donald? This is Thursday, April 25th, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The world should perhaps be more than a little concerned that North Korea's Kim Jong-un visited Moscow yesterday to meet with Russia's Vladimir Putin. Kim arrived there declaring, I have heard so many good things about your country and have long dreamed of visiting. Kim is hoping Putin can help him get around the tough U.S. sanctions that are further crippling his country's economy in an effort to make him give up his quest for nuclear weapons superiority. Putin, who, like the U.S. and China, does not want Kim to have nukes, took the meeting to send a message to the U.S. that Moscow can also influence Kim's nuclear ambitions. Putin is sending a message to the world that the U.S. can no longer be counted on, but that Russia can be. We've learned that last year, during talks between the U.S. and North Korea, Russia secretly offered Kim a nuclear power plant if he'd drop his nuclear weapons program. Kim's visit to Moscow follows the recent failed summit with Art of the Deal co-author Donald Trump. It's Kim's way of saying that with friends like Russia, the U.S. is not the only player here. It was in that context, and it was at that moment, that the New York Times dropped a story powerful enough to shock a nation grown numb by so many previous jolts. It was on Sunday, the first Sunday of this month, that Christian Nielsen finally resigned as the nation's Homeland Security Secretary. Nielsen had endured scorn from the public and the press for enforcing callously cruel policies and making questionable statements about those policies. And she endured scolding from the president for being too soft on migrants, all while trying to carry out her official duties according to the law trying to please the boss, trying to serve the president who got her the gig. Astonishing at the time, when she began as the nation's overseer of our security, Kirsten Nielsen was recorded as saying she wasn't aware of any Russian election interference in 2016. Fast forward to earlier this year, Nielsen had grown concerned about what she had learned about Russian interference in 2016 and in the 2020 election. She learned the Russians had developed some new and improved techniques, different ways to interfere. Then Secretary Nielsen was so concerned, she thought she ought to alert the president. She was told not to bring that up in front of him. As Hope Hicks told the special counsel's investigators, it is his Achilles heel. Trump doesn't like talk of election interference and its real effect on elections outcomes. It reminds him that a large number of Americans think his electoral college victory was illegitimate, that his presidency is illegitimate. Nielsen thought there ought to be a government-wide strategy to combat the threat and a special meeting to get that effort started. Using four White House sources, the Times quotes Trump Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney as saying this wasn't a great subject and should be kept below his level. In other words, best for his ego that Trump not know how the Russians will monkey with the next presidential election or what the U.S. might do to stop it. At least, that's what former White House aide Hope Hicks says in the Mueller report. So Kirsten Nielsen kept her concern and her response to it under the president's radar. She called her own meetings with top officials of the FBI, the Justice Department, and the intelligence community. But nearly half of Nielsen's cyber workforce was sidelined during Trump's month-long government shutdown in January. And last year, Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, eliminated the position of White House cybersecurity coordinator.
Nielsen shares Trump's concern about border security, but even she knew that his policies went too far, sometimes into the illegal. She had endured public abuse over that, but she had also endured frustration at the lack of response to what's been described as the growing Russian threat. The attacks have already begun, according to Microsoft. Not just a lack of response, but resistance to the idea of any response at all, maybe for reasons of ego, maybe for other reasons. Under his leadership, the U.S. is failing to respond to a devastating attack on our democratic process by Russia. The clear and present danger is the president who stands in the way of that response. If there's any consolation for Nielsen or us, it is that even with a lack of involvement by the president, the Pentagon Cyber Command staged a successful cyber attack on the Russians' military cyber team this year, proving it can be done and done again. The cybersecurity work continues at Homeland Security, where officials report they're getting unprecedented help from Facebook, Google, and Microsoft in blocking malicious influence campaigns and quickly removing their posts. Microsoft says it just alerted two U.S. senators that their offices were Russian cyber attack targets. Love her or hate her, Kirsten Nielsen is gone, and apparently so are the chances of that coordinated federal response. Fasten your seatbelts. The roller coaster to 2020 could be a very bumpy ride. For the next few minutes, and only for the next few minutes, I promise, you are Donald J. Trump, President of the United States. Your approval rating has fallen to 37% once again at your personal worst on that scale. And although very few minds get changed by anything these days, 15% of the people now familiar with the contents of the Mueller report say they didn't, but now do, believe that you or people close to you have broken the law. The report that so many people have now read paints you as a paranoid liar who encourages others to hide the truth. At first, you proclaimed the report had exonerated you. Now you're calling it a total hit job by true Trump haters. The primrose path to no collusion, no obstruction laid by you and your new attorney general has been overwhelmed by a portrait much less flattering than the one you bought with money other people donated to your fake charity foundation. Your claims of fake news were disproven in the Mueller report. The journalists at what you call the failing New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winners, were the most correct the most often. Your fake media were right about you trying to fire Mueller, right about you asking Comey to go easy on Flynn, right about you asking for Comey for loyalty, right about your lie that you had no business dealings with Russia as your lawyer jockeyed for a deal to make you millions there. The media was right about your lie of the Trump Tower meeting, right about Manafort's foreign involvements, right about Flynn being susceptible to blackmail, right about you trying to get intelligence officials and others to declare you innocent, right about your campaign's many contacts with Russians, right about your campaign trying to set up back channels of communication with Russia, and right about your eagerness to get Russian dirt on Hillary. As Washington Post book critic Carlos Lozada points out, the Mueller report gives even more credence to Michael Wolff's book Fire and Fury and robs even more credibility from you. It shores up what James Comey wrote in his bestseller A Higher Loyalty. It has shades of Bob Woodward's book Fear, writes Lozada. At 448 pages, not nearly as creatively written, the Mueller Report was at no profit also a nonfiction bestseller, topping the Amazon chart and downloaded by millions of people and permanently ensconced in history. So many people have read that report now or credible summaries of it. 
So many people now have seen what you have done, and they've seen that the reports were true. All for trying to improve the cash value of your name. Now, even the Mueller report is calling out the bidding you've done for Russia, your first national security advisor telling Russia not to worry about sanctions for invading Ukraine, and then lying to the FBI about it, as you praise Vladimir Putin for not retaliating against those sanctions. Yeah, Mueller noticed it too. Your pursuit of the Trump Tower Moscow deal during the campaign and giving your lawyer free reign to lie to Congress about the dates after you yourself had lied about that deal in the campaign. People now know you were lying when you said you had fired Mike Flynn, not because he'd lied to Mike Pence or because Flynn was compromised by Russia. We now know the truth, as you explained to Chris Christie, that you believed that firing Flynn would stop the FBI's Russia probe. You have learned from the Mueller report that your own people are intentionally not carrying out your orders because they think you're dangerous or nuts. You find out you've been disregarded by your once chief of staff and your once top advisor. You find out the greatest resistance to you and your agenda came not from the courts you've attacked or the Congress you've attacked, but as the New York Times points out, the resistance came from inside the White House. The resistance that has thwarted and weakened you as a president has come from your own branch of government, not the others. Even though you won't find it in the Constitution, it's a check and balance on the president that responds much more quickly than either the Congress or the courts, not that you'd bother to check. Two of your ex-lawyers have squealed on you, your old personal fix-it lawyer, even your White House counsel. You find out that their notes and their testimony supplied brushstrokes for this unflattering portrait of you. Your own attorney general refused to do your bidding, so you fired him, and all the others, you believe, have betrayed you. But you find out that much of what's in the Mueller report came from those three attorneys, Cohen, McGahn, and Sessions. You find out that even today, your people are managing you not the other way around. People now know how many times you said you couldn't remember when you were asked questions by the special counsel's investigators. At least 37 times. They heard you that time in October 2017 that you have, quote, one of the great memories of all time. But even you know that 37 is a lot of not remembering. And people already knew you had refused to answer follow-up questions or any questions about obstruction. The Mueller report laid bare your claim there was no obstruction by listing about a dozen instances of it. And these four in particular, your firing of Comey and the odd meetings that led up to it, putting the squeeze on Jeff Sessions to limit or stop the investigation, your witness tampering, encouraging Paul Manafort not to cooperate with the Mueller team, and trying to get the White House counsel to fire Robert Mueller and when he wouldn't do it, you fired the White House counsel. And now Congress has subpoenaed your ex-White House counsel, Don McGahn, who turned out to be the most significant witness against you in the Mueller probe to testify publicly on May 21st. According to that report, McGahn was witness to your attempted obstruction at least three or four times. His name appears in the Mueller report 157 times, at least once, in connection with your apparent witness tampering. McGahn told Mueller a lot, and it's in that report. So you make McGahn and Mueller your new prime targets for public character assassination. Maybe you didn't understand that the White House counsel and his president do not have the attorney-client privilege afforded to the rest of us. White House counsel works for the presidency, not the person. And because you gave McGahn permission to speak to Robert Mueller, you have already waived any executive privilege claim over him, and you cannot take it back.
And what you and your attorney general and your other supporters don't appear to get is that attempted obstruction under the law is obstruction. And maybe you forgot or never knew that it was Nixon's White House counsel who was the key witness in that impeachment. You hate weakness, especially in yourself. You are hurt and angry and determined to save your presidency and salvage the name you spent decades nurturing. Your name was what running for president was all about. You never thought you'd actually win. You had told Michael Cohen you were doing it as a big infomercial for your resorts and hotels. So, in the wake of the Mueller report, you fight back, put up a brave front, go on the offense, tell reporters you're not even a little worried about impeachment, insisting, quote, nobody disobeys my orders. Your unpresidential language has gone more public than ever. You've now openly tweeted barnyard epithets and slang for group masturbation to tens of millions of people. You go to your Florida resort and play golf on the taxpayer's dime. Again, but it's raining. And once the rain stops, playing a few holes with your buddy Rush Limbaugh will absolutely not take your mind off your job. You share your pain with his sympathetic ear, someone who has not yet burned you, and at the same time give Limbaugh some fodder for his radio show the next day. You send out tweets. You lash out on Twitter in an extended tirade, bragging about that which you think you've accomplished and venting your anger at the usual targets more than 50 times in 24 hours at the rate of two or three tweets per hour. You tweet over 100 times in just the five days that follow the release of the Mueller report, to try to defend yourself and attack your attackers. You not only lash out on Twitter, you lash out at Twitter. You send out your TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to say there's nothing wrong with accepting information from Russians. First thing Monday morning, you and the company, you've said you're not running, file a joint lawsuit you cannot win against House Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings to try to stop his subpoena of your financial records, business and personal the head of the executive branch is asking the judicial branch to keep the legislative branch from investigating the appearance that the president has committed loan fraud. And all of this is going down while you were on a roll yourself. You put in a brief, obligatory appearance at the annual White House Easter egg roll, where you'll have to watch your language for the kids as you put in a plug for your border wall. Your new White House Chief of Staff is not like the others, not like Reince Priebus or John Kelly who tried to rein you in. You've rid yourself of the ones often called the adults in the room. Your new acting White House Chief of Staff, who doesn't hear from you as much as his predecessors, lets you be you. Since you brought on your budget director, who also runs the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, to also be your acting at arm's length Chief of Staff, You've gotten to do a lot of stuff the first two kept you from doing. Mick Mulvaney has freed you to shut down the government for the longest stretch in U.S. history. You shook up the entire leadership of Homeland Security. You even got meaner in your immigration policies. You've asked a court to kill Obamacare once and for all, and you've kept the staff on their toes not knowing exactly what your policy is on North Korea. The Mueller report showed the rest of us that your previous chiefs of staff tried to protect you from yourself, but this one lets you be you. You likely did not read the part of the Mueller report that says the president's efforts to influence the investigation were mostly unsuccessful, largely because the persons who surrounded the president declined to carry out orders. Among the many things you don't seem to get is that the people you fired were trying to protect you, and they're gone now. 
In Washington and across the country, the word impeachment is now more than just a whisper. Democrats who were reluctant to pursue impeachment before the Mueller report are now reconsidering, and the I-word is all over the news. Because you are Donald J. Trump, and this is the mess you've made. A lot of the faces we see on the news from Washington are the same faces that were on our television screens 20 years ago. Back then, as they set out to crush the Clinton presidency, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Grassley, Lindsey Graham, Richard Burr, and others were on TV saying that then-President Clinton had obstructed justice by witness tampering. Fast forward to the near present, Mueller reports that Trump made it known Paul Manafort could get a presidential pardon if he'd, quote, stay strong and not flip. Manafort then lied his way into a plea deal to get intel on the Mueller investigation so his lawyers could transmit that intel to Trump's lawyers in the White House. When that plea deal blew up, Manafort quietly went back to his prison cell and the Trump defense had some inside information. The Mueller report also has three pages, mostly redacted, about ongoing obstruction of justice matters involving Trump's longtime advisor and self-labeled political dirty trickster Roger Stone. It's a violation of federal law to tamper with a witness's truthful testimony in any official proceeding, and that certainly includes the Mueller investigation and most certainly pertains to the felony case against Roger Stone. Based on what happened with both Nixon and Clinton, when a president commits that particular felony, it's an impeachable offense. So will this Democrat-controlled House follow suit? The Mueller report lays out a convincing case for Trump's obstruction of justice and throws it to Congress, not Trump's Attorney General William Barr, but to Congress. Congress is now running with that ball, subpoenaing former White House counsel Don McGahn, who provided more help than any other witness in the obstruction part of the Mueller probe. The White House is now suing Judiciary Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings to try to stop that subpoena, but based on legal precedent, it's a case the White House appears destined to lose. It may know that. This appears to be a stalling tactic to try to run out the clock to 2020. More than that, it's part of an overall strategy to stonewall the congressional investigation, setting off a series of court fights between two branches of government. All White House employees, past and present, are being told that the president, under his executive privilege authority, is ordering them all to keep silent and not cooperate with congressional investigators. Subpoenas issued to them will also be challenged, says the White House. Those past and present employees now face either obeying the law and the subpoenas or obeying their boss, the President of the United States. But one of the things Trump learned upon firing Don McGahn is that the White House counsel does not have with the President the same attorney-client privilege of other attorneys and clients and He's already waived executive privilege over McGahn's testimony. And now that he's been fired, McGahn is more free to speak than ever. He doesn't work for Trump anymore. Kind of like John Dean, Nixon's White House counsel in Watergate, who proved to be the key witness in those impeachment hearings. Congress is also left to pursue possible crimes that Mueller did not pursue, besides conspiracy and obstruction. Mueller's singular job was to look for violations of federal law on those two things. Along the way, he found evidence of financial crimes, which he turned over to other federal prosecutors, most notably those in the Southern District of New York who are still on the case. So lawmakers requested Trump's tax returns from the past six years. 
As it always does, the Finance Committee would protect the privacy of those documents. Trump's tax returns would be eyes only to members of that committee. House investigators, meanwhile, want Trump's tax returns to find out if the president's financial dealings have left him somehow compromised with a hostile foreign government. But under White House direction, the IRS director has again ignored a deadline to hand over Trump's tax returns to the House Finance Committee, which Chairman Richard Neal has a right to see by law. That law be damned, Trump's Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin says he'll make a decision on whether to hand over those returns by May 6th, even after missing a second congressional deadline on Tuesday of this week. Mnuchin conveyed to Chairman O'Neill in a 10-page letter explaining that he was waiting for the Justice Department to weigh in, even though under this 1924 law, the Justice Department plays absolutely no role in this part of the process. Each and every standoff will now wind up in court, one branch trying to break up the fight between the other two. Trump's lawyers are urging his accounting firm not to comply with the subpoena it got from the Finance Committee. That accounting firm had actually asked the committee for the subpoena. It's a friendly subpoena, and Trump has no legal standing here or in any effort to stop the subpoenas at Deutsche Bank, which has already started to turn over Trump's records that apparently document his fraudulent statements to get loans, including those for his hotel in D.C. and his failed attempt to buy the Buffalo Bills. Democrats are also pondering impeaching Trump's hand-picked IRS commissioner. Concerned about a possibly compromised executive branch, House Democrats also want to know why the former White House personnel security director gave high-level security clearances to people intelligence officials believed to be too risky for those clearances. That would include the president's daughter, Ivanka, and her husband, presidential son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Too risky, especially Jared. But they and two dozen others got clearance that should not have been granted according to the career professionals still trying to guard our national security. So Oversight's Elijah Cummings subpoenaed Carl Klein, that former security chief, to testify. He never showed up, defying that subpoena. NBC News reports that Klein refused to comply because the White House told him to refuse. Klein has chosen to obey Trump over the law. That committee will now vote on whether to charge Klein with contempt of Congress. Cummings is warning White House officials to check with their lawyers before choosing Trump over the law. Former Nixon lawyer William Jeffress reminds, quote, there's an explicit federal statute punishing retaliation against witnesses. By ordering White House staffers not to cooperate with congressional investigations, Trump is ordering them to break the law, and some of them are obeying him. Congress will make note of this new round of witness intimidation and obstruction, the more Trump tweets as he has been, the deeper the legal hole he's digging for himself with help from his TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Trump's now vowing to fight every subpoena from the House, including a subpoena for advisor Stephen Miller, who guides the president's immigration policy. So add another constitutional court battle to the docket in a series of challenges by the president that are, based on precedent, expected to fail these court fights present a real constitutional crisis, however, in which the nation's system of checks and balances is at stake. Chairman Nadler has even suggested arresting and jailing members of Trump world who refuse to testify, but Democrats have considered less drastic measures like 
cutting off funding for executive branch department whose leaders refuse to cooperate. This administration's best defense to the Mueller report and the investigations it's launched is to stonewall and stall and to go on the offense, whether that offense is any good or not. Along the way, Robert Mueller found evidence of counterintelligence crimes, which he passed along to U.S. intelligence officials and which are also still being investigated today with the help of the FBI. The Mueller probe may be over, but the investigation into how Russia influenced 2016 is not. The FBI is looking to see if any American, perhaps financially, compromised by Russia and whether Russia tapped certain Americans who went along unwittingly as useful tools. The FBI won't say if its investigation includes the president whose suspicious behavior about and with Vladimir Putin remains unaddressed. But this isn't like other counterintelligence investigations if it involves the president. At a certain point, the FBI has to stop. But Congress can pick it up from there. And Congress is now diving headlong into all of it, the obstruction evidence, the financial crimes, and that counterintelligence evidence. Congress is engaged in a full-court press to get the truth about Trump's business dealings, his security clearances, and his apparent obstruction of justice. It's almost as if the impeachment hearings have already begun. Constitutionally, official impeachment hearings begin in the House, which is currently controlled by Democrats, but because they are Democrats, they are divided. The leftists think the moderates are wimps or sellouts. The moderates think the leftists could blow the 2020 election for them all if they don't proceed carefully. Columbia constitutional law professor Philip Bobbitt literally wrote the book on impeachment, a how-to manual he wrote about the process right after the Watergate hearings. Bobbitt tells the Washington Post Greg Sargent that the pre-impeachment hearings have already begun in the form of various investigations being conducted by the various House committees and that investigating further is more likely to lead to the kind of case that would also convince Senate Republicans to take those impeachment hearings to the next level. It's a steep climb, with the Republicans who control the Senate doubling down on their defense of Trump and determined to take another run at investigating, who else? Hillary Clinton. The aforementioned Republican Richard Burr is now chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and the Mueller report reveals that Richard Burr has kept the White House updated on the status of the FBI investigation into Russian interference and the names of a handful of subjects of that investigation— just as Devin Nunes had done when he headed the House Intelligence Committee's investigation. This is a very steep climb and a very treacherous climb. Joe Lockhart, a White House press secretary for President Bill Clinton, writes in the Washington Post that the impeachment effort against the president by Republicans cost them dearly in the election that followed, while leaving Trump in office would, in Lockhart's opinion, destroy once and for all the party that has inextricably attached itself to Trump. He shares Bernie Sanders' view that impeaching Trump but failing to remove him from office will only make Trump and his Trump-publican party stronger. Of course, that idea would leave Trump in office for two more years to inflict more damage on the rule of law, on what it means to be a president, to continue to foster hatred and to destroy the environment or set off another world war. I'll have more on that continuing hatred a little later. Not even trying to remove Trump from office gives a green light to future presidents who might play footsie with Russia or China or some other adversary 
and then obstruct any investigations into it. But investigative hearings are likely to hold this president accountable for what he has done, and they could lead to an impeachment that succeeds, or at the very least, a vote to censure the president, a public condemnation that becomes part of his legacy. In the House, the pressure is on for impeachment hearings to begin, but Professor Bobbitt and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi both believe the best path to impeachment is to stay the course, continue these investigative hearings, and keep calling witnesses. Congress will not be silent, asserts Pelosi, maintaining that it's too early to start impeachment proceedings, saying investigate first. In fact, in Watergate, there were investigations into a cover-up before the Watergate hearings began. These investigations today have just gotten a power boost from the Mueller report, and the lawmakers have subpoenaed that unredacted report. Judiciary's Jerry Nadler saw to that the day after the special counsel's report dropped, the full report and about a million pages of supporting documents, he's demanding. The goal of House investigators is to find that one bit of testimony, that one bit of evidence that dramatically tips the scale of public opinion in a way that will force the Senate to finally do the will of the people. But this is a more trying time for Democrats as they compete against the misdirections of Trump, his Attorney General William Barr, and the other Trump supporters. The pressure from the Democratic left to start impeachment now is forceful, reminding us that the past and present of this country demand we go on record against Trumpian behavior and that the namesake of that brand of politics must be stopped as soon as possible. There is on that side a rush to impeachment, before we even have the full Mueller report. Some Democrats, meanwhile, worry that their party has already waited too long, that the evidence to impeach existed even before the Mueller report, and that now it might be too close to the 2020 election. Meanwhile, the graybeards are reminding the young guns and the worriers that it was health care and other such issues that won them all the House in November. Not impeachment, health care. And they're being reminded that a year from now, in the heat of the 2020 campaign, they don't want to find themselves still talking about impeachment instead of those kitchen table issues. And impeachment could take nine months, with an election 18 months away. Will Americans sit still for that? How risky is this? While only 37% of us want impeachment, and while about the same number are against it, 22% of us, more than one in five, nearly one in four, are undecided. That means that congressional hearings into the breadcrumbs left behind by Robert Mueller could sway that 22%, creating a pro-impeachment majority of 59%, no matter whether we call those hearings investigative or impeachment. At a time Democrats need to win more support for impeachment, impeachment, the word, sounds mean-spirited. Oversight and investigation sounds as constitutional as it actually is. But will voters sit still for another nine or 18 months of investigations? The apex of an impeachment would fall in the heat of the 2020 campaign instead of those bread and butter issues that voters care most about. At the same time, based on the researched views of that Columbia professor, the leftists and the centrists and the Democratic caucus might be wise to agree that, in a way, the impeachment hearings have already begun. We're just not calling them that yet. The only committee that can launch an impeachment proceeding is the judiciary and its chairman, Jerry Nadler. He hasn't ruled it out by any stretch, but for now, Nadler's focused on asking a few questions of William Barr one week from today. 
A good question for Barr might be why he said in his pre-Muller news conference there has to be an underlying crime to charge collusion when that's not true. How can an attorney general who's been on the job a month so quickly determine the meaning of a report assembled over a two-year period before he got there? Jerry Nadler also wants Robert Mueller to testify as soon after Barr as possible, and definitely within the next four weeks. A good question for Mueller might be why he made it a point not to use the word impeachment in his report, as special counsel Ken Starr had in the Clinton investigation, and as special counsel Leon Jaworski had in the Watergate investigation. Why did they mention impeachment and Mueller didn't? He did leave it to Congress, but without the I-word. Trump had made it to individual one status, but never quite made it to the Nixonian level of unindicted co-conspirator. In the meantime, Jerry Nadler says he'll have major hearings with testimony from some of the people who contributed the most to Mueller's investigation. Nadler didn't provide a list, but said it would be a lot of people. But Financial Services Committee Chair Maxine Waters is far less timid than the other committee chairs. Quoting her, Failure to impeach would set a dangerous precedent and imperil the nation as it would vest too much power in the executive branch and embolden future office holders to further debase the U.S. president, said Waters, adding, if that's possible. It only takes a simple majority for the House to impeach a president once it's finished its prosecutorial work. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff says Democrats will hold a meeting about whether or not to launch formal impeachment hearings in the coming weeks. Schiff says he's withholding his own decision until he's heard the full cases for each side of that question. Quoting him, I think what we are going to have to decide as a caucus is what is the best thing for our country. Were this any other president from either party at any other time in American history, they'd be gone by now, either through resignation or impeachment. Thinking of 2020, House Democratic Caucus Chairman Hakeem Jeffries of New York told CNN, the avenue is not impeachment, the avenue is further disclosure to the American people. But the question has been posed, what if that further disclosure forces Congress to impeach? What if the evidence they gather leaves them no choice? What then? Trump now says he would ask the Supreme Court to intervene if Democrats try to impeach him. Surprising probably to him, but not to the educated. He can't do that. It doesn't work that way. It's another sign he has not read the Constitution. The courts have nothing to do with a congressional impeachment. Even if he had appointed all nine justices, legal experts say the high court would never touch the case, labeling it a political question, not a legal one. A 1993 ruling said impeachment, quote, is reposed in the Senate and nowhere else. Trump tweeted again about the angry Democrats, the dirty cops, and that, quote, I did nothing wrong, in all caps. Stay tuned. The special counsel's report mentions the Steele dossier about a dozen times. In each case, the items in it prove to either be false or unprovable. The Democrats in the Clinton campaign never used the dossier that was prepared by a well-respected British spy, but they had paid him to finish an investigation actually launched by a conservative news website in D.C. that had opposed Trump at first but then changed directions. Still, Republicans from Trump down have insisted the Steele dossier was nothing more than a political hit job and that it was wrongly used to launch the FBI's Russia probe, which it wasn't. 
And now, armed with what they say is a disproven Steele dossier, Republicans plan to go after Clinton, the Democrats, the FBI, and perhaps the intelligence community. Trumpublicans say the dossier was what ignited the FBI investigation when, in fact, it was, as he's become known, the Greek guy, George Papadopoulos, bragging about the Trump campaign getting dirt on Clinton from Russia to help the campaign. Attorney General William Barr says he will review the FBI's conduct in this case, investigate the whole darn Russia investigation. Spoiler alert, Barr's already referred to it as spying, this notion of getting court warrants to conduct legal surveillance as part of a broader investigation. Yes, Republicans in the Senate plan to have their own hearings, competing with the Democratic hearings in the House. FBI agents have a less critical view of the Steele dossier. They reportedly do not believe that Steele deliberately made up these disproven things. Even some of Steele's sources may not have meant to intentionally deceive. Likewise, some of Steele's sources had connections with Russia, and Russia has become rather adept at spreading disinformation. There does not appear to be any video of Trump being entertained by prostitutes in a Moscow hotel room. There does appear to be plenty of rumor about it. The Mueller team looked into it. It found a text from a Russian businessman to Michael Cohen just before the election that reads, Stop flow of tapes from Russia, but not sure if there's anything else, just so you know. Cohen himself had also been trying to find out if the video existed. His search was extensive. In congressional testimony, Cohen said he concluded in the end that there were no tapes. But more important than a lot of the sensational stuff in the Steele dossier is what it got right. What it got right was its listing of the mysterious and repeated contacts between members of the Trump campaign and Russians. On that, the Steele dossier is completely credible. This is not our beautiful country. How did we get here? Enter talking head Bob Seska from Salon.com. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. As Samuel L. Jackson says in Jurassic Park, hang on to your butts. I intend to rant here a little, but first some background. With the release of the Mueller report, we've reached another milestone in the ongoing investigation into our collective nightmare, the Trump crisis and the events surrounding it. Consequently, I've been revisiting big picture concepts and observations orbiting this slow motion disaster. The concepts that occasionally need to be reinforced or else we tend to lose sight of where we are as we're bombarded by the fire hose of Trump news. One of the big picture concepts I keep circling back to is the mass delusion of the Red Hats, specifically the indescribably stupid decision by 62 million American voters to cast ballots in support of this chaos agent and whatever percentage of those voters continue to endorse Trump's deranged presidency. For a good while, I thought I'd reach a place where I might not be as pissed about these easily led automatons, these gullible rubes who thought, hey, why don't we elect a monkey with a machine gun and see what happens? As John Mulaney says in his latest Netflix special, let's shove a horse into a hospital because, you know, the hospital is totally mismanaged. The knee-jerk nomination of Donald Trump by Republican voters, followed by his electoral college victory in the general election, were based on several well-known factors. There was the sexist hatred of Hillary Clinton due to decades of right-wing agitprop. There was the racist blowback from the presidency of Barack Obama. Perhaps more than anything, there was a cultural link between many of Trump's hardcore supporters and Trump himself, a sort of white male boomer backlash against a rapidly evolving societal landscape. 
There was the viral social media attack by Russians that successfully exacerbated all of the above, combined with the news media's unquestioning publication of the emails stolen by Russian military intelligence and dumped into the world by Julian Assange. And there's just plain owning the libs. Whatever the explanation, it's difficult to fully grasp the unbelievable level of irresponsibility of this support, the confounding lack of respect for the office of the presidency, and more broadly, the inattention to the nuanced and delicate disposition of the American system of government. Over the years, millions of voters became conditioned to the idea that politics was just like sports, but with ugly weirdos rather than elite athletes. Millions of voters, collectively in some circles and independently in others, decided that American politics had become so frivolous and inconsequential that it didn't matter anymore who occupied the White House, that thrusting the iconoclastic loudmouth from the Celebrity Apprentice television show would make as good a president as any. Those badly deluded, badly misinformed voters thought to themselves, yeah, this guy who knows nothing about anything will totally shock the system into functioning on all cylinders. But before this mass delusion formed in their skulls, animating their ass-backwards political activism, they were repeatedly told by cable news and Sunday show pundits that so-and-so is a game-changer who hit a home run and who spiked the ball in the end zone, then won the week in the horse race. Voters of all stripes have been led to believe it's the argument that matters, that politics is all about the fight they've been instructed, rather than a debate based on facts leading to a resolution. I know for a fact Trump and his inner circle are all about the fight. Trump himself deliberately triggers chaos while inventing his own outcomes in defiance of reality. And of course, Trump can yank the resolution from his ass because it's ultimately irrelevant. For instance, with NASCAR or professional wrestling, it's all about the crashes and the devastating beatings. The victory at the end is secondary, anticlimactic next to the brutality of the competition. And besides, in sports, the outcome has no bearing whatsoever on the broader functioning of the world. The winner of last night's Red Sox game won't trigger the loss of health care for millions, nor will the hockey playoffs translate into an economic recession. The crisis stems from millions of voters agreeing that politics is just a spectator sport, and what could possibly go wrong with that? The Trump presidency in particular, they seem to believe, is nothing more than a way to piss off the losers of the election, in the same way the Dallas Cowboys fans want to own the Philadelphia Eagles fans. What this really shows, beside rank ignorance, is a skull-crushing lack of respect for how fragile the system really is. The American system is partly based on traditions and courtesy, believe it or not. It's based on the president realizing he's cloaked in unrivaled power but it's power he's not at liberty to flaunt or abuse. It's the personal restraint of nearly every past president that's kept us from being ruled by a series of dictators. There's no enforcement mechanism held by Congress to compel the president to acquiesce to oversight or removal. There's no enforcement mechanism to strong-arm the president into obeying the will of the Supreme Court. Past presidents have done so because of a sense of duty and responsibility to the continuity of the American system, to the rule of law. Trump possesses none of this restraint or respect for the office. 62 million voters utterly failed, and catastrophically so, to make this mandatory connection between values, decorum, traditions, and the man behind the resolute desk. 
It's terrifying to consider how treacherous these times are, knowing that the president is a mentally unstable a-hole, driven by self-preservation and self-preservation alone, who doesn't understand the government, who hasn't read the Constitution, and who's currently unleashed from babysitters in the White House, most of whom have been fired or resigned. This man, who 62 million Americans thought would be a mind screw against the establishment, but who's turned out to be everything we warned about, holds a copy of the nuclear codes in his pocket at all times, or at least he's supposed to. One of the political buzzwords that gets kicked around a lot lately is, quote unquote, the establishment or the, quote, rigged system. Too many of us on every side have begun to take the system for granted. While there are glaring flaws we could spend all day listing, up until Trump, we enjoyed relative stability here. This stability, I believe, has fostered a sense of complacency and hubris, allowing us to suggest out loud that we need to just upend the system, that we need to tear down the establishment, and hell, maybe this freak with his hair and his Patrick Bateman's sons and his half-dozen bankruptcies will do the trick. Too many of us believe we can achieve a quick rewrite of the whole deal while maintaining our McMansions and our soccer practices and our streaming channels and the ongoing crickets chirping in the backyard. Too many of us are horrendously wrong. The wafer-thin membrane between American society and an oppressive kleptocracy slash autocracy can be torn wide open with the snap of a finger. Trump could wake up tomorrow and announce he's no longer subject to the other two branches of government, that he's declaring martial law and granting himself new powers, and he'll order the military to back him up. Then boom goes the dynamite. The Trump crisis was manifested by a multi-pronged glitch, a skewing of the space-time continuum onto a new trajectory. Yes, there were Russians, and there was terrible news media coverage of the election. But this crisis ultimately resides on the shoulders of the men and women who didn't stop to consider the seriousness of what they were doing. So whether it's the macro issues impacting the operational functionality of the American system or the micro issues impacting each citizen directly, the elevation of Trump has tossed all of that into the worst jeopardy we've seen here since 1860. We can blame Trump. Some of us will blame both sides. But this crisis comes down to the Red Hats who deserve to bear the shame of history for this raging kaiju monster they've dispensed into the world. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of Bob at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back again with Bob on Tuesday. Former Vice President Joe Biden this morning announced his third run for president, entering a field of more than 20 Democratic candidates. Fun fact, the first time Biden ran for president, Pete Buttigieg was in kindergarten. Biden says he was inspired to run by the Trump-fueled spread of hatred in the U.S. This week alone, the leader of a militia emboldened by Trump was arrested by the FBI for felonies of illegal possession of firearms and ammunition. That militia had been abducting migrants and holding them as prisoners at the border, their response to the president's declaration that their country was being invaded at the southern border. The man had reportedly been training to assassinate George Soros, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. In Florida, a man's been arrested for making racist and threatening phone calls to Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman Elon Omar. He left a similar message for Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. He made an equally racist and threatening call to New Jersey Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Cory Booker. Vigilantes have surfaced at and within our borders, emboldened by this president. 
Judging from the questions posed by a conservative Supreme Court on Tuesday, it appears the justices are going to allow the Trump administration to add a question about citizenship to the census. We take a census every 10 years to understand how many people there are, where they live, and more. The administration argues it needs to count the number of undocumented people in this country versus common sense, which says if you're here illegally, you're not going to write that down on a federal government form. As a result, people won't be counted in a census designed to count the number of people in this country, not the number of citizens, the number of people. The idea is to let the government know how many congressional representatives there should be, how to draw congressional districts, and how to allocate money. The Trump plan is projected to cause an undercount of six and a half million people and inflict real damage on California, taking away up to three of its seats in Congress. Without a count of people, money and representation to which they have a constitutional right, citizen or not, will be denied. So far, three federal judges have said no to the Trump administration's migrant snatching plan, but the administration has now pushed the question to a conservative Supreme Court which now includes two Trump appointees as part of that conservative majority. Trump is considered likely to win this one, especially judging from the questions that were asked by the Supreme Court justices this week. In spite of all the legal briefs filed by all those states and civil rights groups, the conservatives on the bench were focused on the opinion that decisions about the census belong completely in the hands of the executive branch, not in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court. Likewise, this conservative court has agreed to take up the question of whether LGBTQ citizens are protected against discrimination in the workplace. Specifically, the justices are looking at the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which does not mention that part of our population, but sets a legal precedent banning discrimination against any group of people for being who or what they are. The Trump administration argues that without that specific mention, LGBTQ citizens are not covered by the Civil Rights Act. Stay tuned. The T, of course, is for transgender, and that population seems specifically targeted by the Trump administration. It's preparing to roll back health care coverage for transgender people. The administration's about to drop a new rule through Health and Human Services that makes it easier for doctors, hospitals, and insurance companies to deny care for transgender patients on moral grounds. So that includes women who had abortions, by the way. While we're at it, all of these moves come on the heels of the Trump administration's ban on new transgender military recruits. There's a concern that all this is leading up to an attempt to narrow the definition of gender to either male or female with no legal standing for those who don't fit comfortably at either end of the spectrum of human sexuality. The New York Times reported last year that a memo to that effect has already circulated in the Homeland Security Department. A spokeswoman for a transgender equality group calls it a blueprint for discrimination. And in Florida, Republican lawmakers are pushing a so-called parents' bill of rights. It's too late in this legislative session for Florida's legislature to pass the bill, but it's already been approved by three committees, and it's being pushed toward the top of the agenda for next season when the lawmakers also plan to require parental consent before daughters can get an abortion. The opposition to both these bills has time to get out its message, but there's a slim chance it'll make any difference. This so-called Parents' Bill of Rights would give parents absolute authority over the, quote, education and care of their children, including their, quote, 
moral and religious training. A kid with suicidal thoughts under this law would have to go through their parents to get to the school counselor. And a counselor who had met with such a child would have to notify the parents. Even if they are not suicidal, maybe their family just isn't supportive. Maybe the issue is physical abuse by the parents. Conservatives argue parents should be the first to know by law. Maybe the student is learning to deal with being gay at an already challenging age. The possibilities are likely numerous. Parents who object to their kids' textbooks could exempt their child from that required reading. And parents who don't want their kids to be vaccinated would have a law in Florida to give them legal cover if they opt out. On that note, an update on the nation's measles outbreak. The emu slept in the basement and it's naked guy season again in the final segment after this. If mom's not happy, nobody's happy. One way to make your mom happy is to recognize all the things she's done for you. Now's your chance. Mother's Day is Sunday, May 12th. Here's a hint. She likes chocolate. She likes fruit. Sometimes she likes them together. Sherry's Berries just happens to have some special Mother's Day berries designed just for moms, topped with chocolate chips, pink shimmer sugar, and swizzles. Even if you don't know what shimmer sugar is, your mom probably does, and she'll love it. Visit berries.com to see for yourself. While you're there, put in an order for your own mother and the other special moms in your life. And be sure to click the microphone in the upper right corner and enter the code REALM, that's R-E-L-M, to get freshly dipped strawberries to mom for just $19.99. And for just 10 bucks more, you can double her order. That'll really make her happy. You choose the delivery date to make sure she gets her Sherry's Berries at the best possible time. That's berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Enter the code R-E-L-M and give the spectacular gift of Sherry's Berries for just $19.99. You'll be happy you did. More importantly, so will Mom. The Washington State Senate this week passed a bill that restricts the number and kinds of exemptions that parents were able to get to prevent their kids from getting the MMR vaccine that's 90% effective against measles. Washington's had at least 74 of its own cases this year. Religious and medical exemptions are still allowed, and parents can still opt out of other vaccinations so long as their kids get the two MMR shots. Washington is one of 17 states that allow parents to opt their kids out of the shots because of their beliefs, no matter how much of a threat those beliefs are to public health. The U.S. now has more measles cases than it has seen in 25 years before the disease was officially eradicated in this country, following a vaccination program that began in 1963. In the present, at last count, there were nearly 700 cases in at least 22 states, from Massachusetts to Nevada, from Washington State to Florida, from Los Angeles to New York City. 71 new cases in the past week because measles has a slow incubation rate. We likely haven't seen the worst of this outbreak yet. Most of the cases are in unvaccinated communities, a product of the misinformed anti-vax movement. The disease was apparently brought here to the United States to a susceptible country by travelers from Ukraine, the Philippines, and Israel who have measles outbreaks of their own. New numbers come out each Monday and they keep going up. This year's flu season that started around Thanksgiving hasn't gone away either. It's lasted for at least 21 weeks now. We'll get new numbers on that tomorrow. 
It has, of course, the flu season slowed down, but 18,000 of us went to the hospital for it this season, and uh, roughly 8 million went to doctors. 91 people died this year, including three babies just last week. We may top 55,000 flu deaths this year, which can also be prevented with harmless vaccinations. With the arrival of warmer weather dawns the annual concern about children left in hot cars. Last year, that killed 51 children, our worst year ever. It can happen in almost any part of the country. Since 1998, the only places it hasn't happened are New Hampshire, Vermont, and Alaska. But as the climate warms, they could join the lower 47 in this ongoing outbreak. The National Safety Council has just launched a 15-minute online course to teach parents tips to avoid the horrifying accident of leaving the kid in the car. One of the best tips, put your phone or wallet or watch or shoe in the back seat, something you won't leave the car without. You wouldn't leave your shoe or your phone. This way you won't leave your child, the one you love, in the chaos that is your life. You can Google that video as kids and hot cars. Never mind what time zone you live in, it's which side of the time zone that's important. If you live on the eastern side of your particular time zone, you tend to be healthier than those who live on the western part of their time zone. Data gathered in a new sleep study says the reason is east-siders go to bed about 20 minutes earlier than west-siders because that's a body's natural response to a sunset that it is about 20 minutes earlier on the east side than the sunset on the west side. It's the fading of daylight that triggers the body's production of melatonin. The sooner it fades, the sooner we can get to sleep. Unfortunately, work and school start at the same time on both sides of the time zone, which means a shorter night for west-siders. A scientist who conducted the study says humans are the only beings on the planet who intentionally damage their sleep cycles, staying up late, getting up early, changing our clocks twice a year, and making primetime TV 8 to 11 on the East Coast while it's on at a healthier 7 to 10 p.m. in the Central Time Zone with an identical conflict between the Mountain and Pacific Zones. This expert suggests that we are paying too much attention to man-made clocks and not enough to the ones built into our bodies. Tick-tock. An American ice cream maker has shut down in the wake of three separate recalls of ice cream contaminated with listeria and salmonella. The FDA found contamination in 19 of the 89 ice cream factories it inspected. This follows a wave of 16 ice cream recalls in three years with at least one fatality. In Chicago, the owner of the nationally famous Garrett Popcorn Company is suing one of its ex-employees for allegedly stealing the company's top-secret recipes. Aisha Putnam worked for parent company Caramel Crisp for five years as director of research and development. She was one of only three employees who had access to those secret recipes and other highly confidential company data. Caramel Crisp says she got early word that she was about to be fired and loaded over 5,000 files, totaling 3 gig, onto a personal USB drive and left before she could be fired. At the very least, the company wants a court order to make sure Ms. Putnam doesn't use those corporate secrets anywhere else. The munchies from marijuana have not spiked the obesity numbers, according to a study in the International Journal of Epidemiology. 
The study followed 66,000 adults for three years. Half of them were pot smokers. The other half were not. Their body mass was accounted for, as was their marijuana use. On average, over those three years, the 33 pot smokers weighed two pounds less than their non-toking counterparts. Their obesity rate was 17%, more than five points below those who don't partake. The researchers emphasized this is not a diet tip and that individual results may vary. The way cannabis lovers celebrate 420 day, you'd think it was a holiday. Hallmark may soon see it that way. Lyft already does, offering a $4.20 credit on a single ride on that special day in Colorado and select cities in the U.S. and Canada. Carl's Jr. in Denver is experimenting with a CBD-infused hamburger. Ben & Jerry's is going a more political route, urging its customers to pressure lawmakers to wipe all marijuana simple possession convictions off the books. The celebration now includes the medical along with the recreational. One Colorado promoter says he thinks 420 could be bigger than Valentine's Day or Halloween. Quoting him in The Guardian, for people who use cannabis, 420 is as big as Christmas. Hallmark's got to be reading about this. A long-running daytime soap opera was called As the World Turns. We'll call ours As the Planet Warms. Take a deep breath or don't. The American Lung Association says global warming is causing more Americans to draw more toxins into their lungs. The association says nearly half of us, 43%, live somewhere that has us breathing unsafe air. The number of Americans breathing that air has increased by 7 million since the Lung Association's last report. Smoke from the wildfires growing in number and size get a lot of the blame. Our increased burning of fossil fuels for energy is also a prime suspect. So Iceland is green and Greenland is melting. This week we learned that Greenland, the very foundation of which is ice, is melting faster than it was in the 1980s. They looked at 50 years worth of data and this is definitely faster than in the 80s. Six times faster. Greenland is now dumping 286 billion tons of melting ice into the rising ocean over the past eight years. That's six times the rate of the entire 80s decade. And it's melting ice that causes half of the rise in our oceans. This is expected to get worse, not better, but scientists insist it can be slowed and perhaps reversed, but only if we act drastically and quickly. Which, of course, brings us back to the Trump administration and its plan to allow more coal mining on federal government lands. The Obama administration had slapped a moratorium on that, and of course, Trump needs it overturned as part of his pledge to protect big business from those annoying government regulations and to promote coal and the other fossil fuels that continue to warm the planet. A federal judge has now dealt Trump's policy a serious blow by ruling that his Interior Department broke the law when it tried to lift that Obama moratorium and failed to include studies of the environmental effects of digging for coal on the people's land. And there is increasing resistance in the streets, especially this year on Earth Day. Over a thousand people were arrested this week as they took part in climate change protests labeled the Extinction Rebellion. At Universal Studios Theme Park in California, two protesters climbed to the top of the company's trademark globe and superglued themselves to the surface. They were eventually unglued and arrested along with two other protesters nearby. All four are charged with felonies. This was not an isolated incident. Nearly 1,100 were arrested at the Extinction Rebellion protest in London. 
The group now has the backing of over 100 prominent academic scholars in England, including the former Archbishop of Canterbury. Extinction Rebellion reports chapters in the U.S., India, Spain, South Africa, Australia, and the Solomon Islands. We'll also take a moment this week to appreciate the wonders of the world we still have. In Florida, a couple caught a swordfish that weighed 758 pounds, beating the old record by nearly 150 pounds, according to the Florida Fish and Game Commission. It was not as big as the one caught in 1953 in Chile. That one weighed 1,200 pounds. This Florida fish put up an eight-hour fight and dragged the couple's boat for 20 miles. The fish was not destined to become a trophy. Instead, it fed a lot of people. And the captain of the boat says, it was the best fish I've ever eaten. Not your thing? Well, the fish isn't your only lucky find possibility. A middle school girl visiting a beach in North Carolina found something unusual in the sand. A shark's tooth. Oh, sure, lots of people have found lots of shark's teeth on beaches before. But in 25 years of looking, the girl's dad had never found one. The whole family that day set out in a friendly competition to find a shark's tooth on the beach. The middle schooler not only found one, but it appears to be from a shark that went extinct three million years ago. Elsewhere in the Tar Heel State on Earth Day, Fred Reisman of Mooresville set a new Guinness World Record for the number of four-leaf clovers collected in under two hours. Think four-leaf clovers are rare? Fred found 228 of them in the allotted time. That easily beats the previous Guinness record set just last year by a 10-year-old girl in Virginia who picked 166 of them. Better luck next year, Katie. 10-year-old Sarah, meanwhile, is living proof that if she can do it, so can we. Sarah Hinesley, now in third grade, likes to draw and paint and sculpt with clay. She can write in English and Mandarin because she came here four years ago from China, and this year she found it easy to learn to write in cursive handwriting, all of which is made pretty amazing by the fact that Sarah has no hands and no prosthetics, doesn't wear them, never has. She was born without hands, but she has never let that slow her progress. She grips the pencil or paintbrush between her arms, she says writing in cursive feels a lot like painting. On June 13th, Sarah will be honored with a trophy, a national award for her handwriting, without hands. How have we handled our own hurdles? If she can do that, so can we. David Novinsky has worked as a subcontractor for Dish Network in Denver, installing and repairing satellite TV equipment. He's also a hugger, a real Joe Biden type, and... As Biden has just recently learned, not everybody likes being hugged. A 70-year-old Dish customer says Novinsky gave her a bear hug as he was leaving that she says painfully pinned her arms and chest. She says she feared she might be raped. She says she pushed him away and told him to leave, but that he stuck around to apologize. Novinsky's lawyer says his client contends she never said a word about the hug that day. When she immediately called Novinsky's boss to complain about this awful, awful man, Novinsky says he'll fight to protect his otherwise stellar reputation. And then after that, maybe a hug. It's hugs all around in Michigan and three other states after a court ruling that it's unconstitutional for police to mark your tires with chalk to check for parking violations. You can thank Allison Taylor, who, while at work, 
has gotten over a dozen $15 tickets for exceeding Saginaw's two-hour parking limit. Allison's lawyer argued that the chalk mark violates a citizen's Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable searches. And shocker, the court agreed. A three-judge panel agreed. The decisions being celebrated in Michigan and the tire-marking states of Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, the city of Saginaw fought the lawsuit to defend the $200,000 a year it had been collecting in parking fines involving chalked tires. You'll need extended parking to see the movie Avengers Endgame that opens this weekend with a running time of three hours and two minutes, but with four-star reviews. A Wisconsin man has broken his fifth Guinness World Record, this one for seeing the movie Captain Marvel in a theater 116 times. He's documented each theater visit with photos and signed witness documents to qualify for the Guinness Book. And, he says, he's picked up some nuances from the film he suspects other people have missed. Want to catch up with him? It's still showing at number two on the North American ticket sales chart this week. The violent horror movie La Llorona is at the moment on top with a $26 million opening. For all the movies from previews to tickets, kindly click the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Life's becoming a bit of a horror show for Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, who's now under federal investigation for mishandling users' personal information. He's now in settlement talks with the Federal Trade Commission. But Facebook had another privacy mishap last week, exposing millions of passwords for its Instagram users. The expected fine is expected to be as much as $5 billion as Facebook and the government discuss ways to stop the bleeding of data. But a $5 billion fine from the FTC represents only about two weeks' worth of income at Facebook. One critic calls it a parking ticket for putting democracy in danger. Facebook's also being scrutinized by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, the good news from a Denver suburb is that it has changed its name to the sweet-sounding Cherry Hills Village. It will no longer be named after the company that developed it. Most everyone agrees that's a much better name than the one it's had since before the Nazis appropriated the word. Henceforth, the Denver suburb of Cherry Hills Village will no longer be known as Swastika Acres. Jennifer Oates was not shaken when an emu wandered into her New York State yard on Easter there, she joined police in their pursuit of the Australian bird through the middle of town and up and down the on-ramp for I-88. Jennifer was well familiar with the birds after raising them with her family in Texas as a child, and it was she who sneaked up on the emu from behind, calmed its legs, and coaxed it to lie down. She says the powerful bird was very docile as if it were someone's pet, like the one she had as a kid in Texas. The emu now lives at a private animal preserve nearby after spending the night in Jennifer's basement. I mean, where else do you put an emu? In Ohio, some parents thought their daughters were making up their claims of a creature living in their closet. But this went on for three days. Finally, when mom looked into the girl's bedroom closet, she discovered an opossum living among the plush toys that covered the closet floor. Her daughters were not playing possum. The parents released the creature into the woods. The warmer weather has brought out more sightings of animals in places they shouldn't be, especially in Chicago, where in the past week, a deputy had to rescue a loose donkey 
from the I-90 Super Slab in the Arlington Heights neighborhood. Dusty is the name of the donkey, not the deputy, and the donkey has been returned to its owner. From donkeys to monkeys, a monkey was found running loose in a Chicago ambulance services maintenance garage. He was rescued by Animal Control, which is looking for the owner of the loose monkey. In Washington State, a woman's asking neighbors to keep an eye out for her missing cat, her missing African serval cat. Tango was last spotted near the Gig Harbor YMCA and a nearby retirement home. The woman says that Tango is declawed, good with people, but will be hard to catch with a running speed of 40 miles an hour. In the capital city of Monrovia, Liberia, that country's president would just like his office back. President George Weah is working from home at present as his presidential office is riddled with snakes. After this week's fumigation, Liberia's president is expected to be back at his official desk on Monday. The warmer weather has also brought out the people who like to go naked. In Nashville, a man returned home to find a stranger sitting on his couch drinking juice and completely naked. Uh, the owner ran outside, called police, who arrived to hear the naked stranger scream and drop his juice. The naked man tried to escape the home wearing only a T-shirt. Police caught him, discovered he had also eaten the resident's ice cream, and threw him in jail on $5,000 bail. In Dunedin, Florida, police are asking for the public's help in identifying the man who burglarized a Little League concession stand while wearing only a baseball cap and gloves. He stole cameras and the cash box with 250 bucks inside and did $5,000 damage breaking in. The surveillance video that will hopefully identify the burglar reveals he also stole a package of hot dogs. In Wyoming, Michigan, a five-year-old boy waited until his grandmother was asleep to call 911. It was a McMergency. Isaiah Hall asked the dispatcher, Can you bring me some McDonald's? No, said the dispatcher, who passed this on to police. Officer Dan Patterson took the radio call and stopped by Isaiah's grandmother's house just to make sure everything was okay, that Isaiah was getting fed. Peterson says the call, however, made him laugh so much, he, uh, he stopped at McDonald's on the way to Grandma's house. When Officer Patterson was greeted at the front door by the little boy, the officer did not get the warm welcome he was expecting. My grandma's going to be so mad, said the five-year-old, adding, can you please go away? And finally, the skydiver is over here, and his leg is over there. In Sonoma County, California, a one-legged skydiver who had lost a leg in a previous skydiving accident two years ago watched his prosthetic leg drop away this week mid-flight on his way down to a safe one-point landing. The artificial leg was found later, elsewhere, in a nearby lumberyard. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for patronizing my sponsors and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.